Good afternoon, everyone. In previous sermons in our Two Covenants series, we discussed the relationship between the Old and New Covenants and the reasons why, or some reasons, why the Old Covenant was given. To review, let's go over some of the things we've discussed. We did discuss the concept that the Old Covenant was a type of the New Covenant. It was given as an introduction to living spiritual principles, but as it was a shadow or a type or a figure of the New Covenant and the spiritual principles incorporated into the New Covenant, the Old Covenant was not the full reality of what the New Covenant encompasses. For example, the sacrifices under the Old Covenant, the physical sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were, among other things, a type of Christ's sacrifice. Not just the animal sacrifices, but some of the other things that were offered as well. But those sacrifices were not the reality of the sacrifice itself, that is, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were a, a symbol, a, a shadow, but not the reality. Among the reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant, we discussed... First of all, the separation and preservation of a people for God. It was a tutor or a schoolmaster pointing to Christ. It was a form of knowledge and truth. It was to teach the nature and effect of sin. And it was to reveal the need for the Holy Spirit. Now before we finish this series, we will discuss, or at least we plan to discuss, how the New Covenant supplies the need for God's Holy Spirit through repentance and baptism, leading eventually to the ultimate purpose of human existence, being born from the dead, so to speak, in a metaphorical sense, to eternal life in the kingdom of God. But before we get into more specific details concerning the, old, the New Covenant, I want to briefly list some other important reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant in addition to the five already discussed. Now this list is not intended to be exhaustive, but I hope it will provide food for thought. In addition to the five reasons already mentioned for the giving of the Old Covenant, we're going to list quickly some others. Number six, why Christ's death was necessary. Why Christ's death was necessary by showing that the penalty of sin is death and that an atonement must be made for sin by the shedding of blood, the law or the old covenant shows why the death of Jesus Christ was essential to the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Under the old covenant, the animal sacrifices that were offered to God by the people were required to be brought to the door of the tabernacle. And there, near the altar at the door of the tabernacle, they were to be slain by slitting their throats or, in the case of birds, by wringing off their heads. In either case, the blood of the animal was shed. And the reason for this is given in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, where it says, For the life of the flesh is in, its, in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. In other words, the blood is an atonement that is a substitute for one's life. The blood of the sacrifice was to make atonement for sin as a substitute for the person's life in payment of the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin as God told Adam and Eve at the very beginning, is death. But that atonement sacrifice, the physical sacrifices, the blood sacrifices of the Old Covenant were not of themselves sufficient payment for the penalty of sin. They were only a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which alone can fully pay for our sins. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, it says, The blood of the sacrifices under the Old Covenant were symbolic. This is Hebrews 9, verse 22. 
were symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Going on in Hebrews 9 and verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So rather than the blood of goats and calves under the new covenant, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that was offered. And of course that was pictured and looked forward to under the old covenant. In Hebrews 10 verse 1 it says, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. And going on in Hebrews 10 and verse 4, it says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ offering himself in payment for our sins. Going on in verse 8, it says, Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the God saw to it that the physical system of sacrifices shortly after the death of Jesus Christ, that system was removed because it was not possible to continue that system as it was specified to be implemented when the temple itself was destroyed. And so from that time to this, there have been no sacrifices of that kind being offered. But the body of Christ has been offered to pay for our sins for all time. So we see that the offering of the blood of physical animal sacrifices pointed to Christ's sacrifice and demonstrated by their inadequacy the need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, a seventh reason for the giving of the old covenant is that under that covenant was revealed God's will in the way that he would have us walk. Paul wrote to the Jews in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 2 and verse 18, uh, or beginning with verse 17, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. So the law was given to give us uh, a, uh, an understanding of God's will and what things are excellent or approved of God. So we see that the law of the Old Covenant instructed us in God's will and the things of God, that is the way of, his, uh, the way of life, approved of God. An eighth reason for the giving of the Old Covenant was that it reveals the form and structure of God's government. It reveals the form and structure of God's government. In Hebrews 8 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, that is the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, a priest had to be a descendant of Aaron, and had to be a Levite, uh, had to be of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron. And goes on to say that, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since they're priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Now, this section of Scripture that we just read is speaking of Jesus Christ and His ministry. The fact that He is a high priest and He is a minister of the sanctuary of God. The priesthood, or a priesthood, was established under the Old Covenant, but it was a priesthood patterned after the heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the high priest of God, to whom the copy or shadow of the priesthood of the, of the Old Covenant pointed. Now in Hebrews 12, verse 18, it says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. That's speaking of Mount Sinai when God revealed the law. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks, speaks better things than that of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape, or we, uh, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now what Paul is telling us here is that God is a sovereign ruler of the earth, of the universe. And he is especially the ruler of his church. And it is Christ's voice that must be obeyed, just as it was the voice of God thundering from Mount Sinai into the Old Covenant that was to be obeyed. It is Christ's voice that we are to obey and give heed to. And so Jesus Christ is the ruler, the sovereign, the high priest. He is the apostle and for that matter he's also the king of creation and so that was all pointed to or typified under the old covenant a ninth reason for the giving of the old covenant is that it reveals the plan of God in the laws given to Israel under the Old Covenant was revealed in seed-like form the plan of God, the plan of salvation for mankind. And this is especially true of the Sabbath and the annual festivals that were given under the Old Covenant. Now, many details of God's plan were not more fully revealed until later, some in the Old Testament and others not until Christ Himself came and revealed them. And, and some were revealed later on even to Paul and so forth. And he wrote them down in, 
they became a part of Scripture, the information that He passed on to us. But the outline of the plan of God is found in the festivals of God and in various Scriptures of the Old Testament. In Colossians 2 and verse 16, it says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Now, some take this to, to uh, imply that we need not keep festivals or Sabbaths, but that's not what it says. It says, let no one judge you in these things. But it goes on to say, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Or it should be translated, this last phrase here should be translated the body of Christ, which is what it actually reads in the Greek. The body of Christ doesn't read substance is of Christ. That's, that's a human interpretation. But it is not what Scripture says. And the head of the body of Christ is Jesus Christ. He is our judge in these things. Jesus Christ is our judge in matters of food and drink, of festivals and so forth. And Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And it is His Word by which we are bound. And those festivals, as it says here, are a shadow of things to come. That, that is, they are an outline. They are a prophetic outline of things to come. That is, an outline of God's plan it is, as it is being worked out through the ages. And those festivals take us from, from the, the, the uh, sacrifice of Christ, the coming out of sin, repentance, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and on to Christ's second coming as judge of the earth to the, to the, uh, the worldwide repentance and, and atonement through Jesus Christ that will follow Christ's coming and putting away of Satan and the reign of Jesus Christ on the earth and then the, the final end time, the, the second resurrection and so forth. Those festivals take us through the plan of God and we rehearse them each year by keeping them. And that was one of the reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant. Now, a tenth reason is that the Old Covenant reveals the way of love. It reveals the way of love. In Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that he, that is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These commandments, these commandments to love God and to love your neighbor are at the very heart and core of God's way of life, of His law and of His expectations for us. In Romans 13 and verse 8, Paul wrote, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, or literally, in the Greek it reads, love, or the, uh, this last phrase in the Greek literally reads, the fulfilling of the law is love. In other words, when we fulfill the law, that is how we love God and how we love one another. And John said the same thing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. He said, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God 
and keep His commandments. Notice when we love God and keep His commandments, for this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. The love of God, the kind of love, what, what defines love as far as God is concerned is the keeping of His commandments. And of course that should be motivated by an outgoing concern for others and a deep desire to do good and to have an appropriate affection for God and for other people. An eleventh reason for the giving of the Old Covenant is that it set the stage for Christ's ministry. It set the stage for Christ's ministry. Jesus Christ would never have been able to accomplish the purpose of His first coming during His short life on earth if the way had not already been prepared. He had to have a framework of instruction to refer to in order to make His teachings intelligible. And that framework was the law of Moses and the prophets. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And in Isaiah 42 and verse 21, it says, The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness sake. Speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, He will exalt the law and make it honorable. Malachi 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And in Malachi 4 and verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. So these are some of the main reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant in such a manner. And as I said, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list and there may be other reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant, but these are some of them. Up to now we've been discussing primarily the Old Covenant and the functions it was designed to serve. And that gives us a background for a discussion of the New Covenant but as we begin our discussion of the New Covenant, I think it would be appropriate at this point to answer the question, why have a covenant at all? What is the function of a covenant in God's plan? What's the function of a covenant? Why, uh, what's its purpose? A covenant is simply an agreement solemnly entered into by two or more parties. In the Bible, covenants were commonly sealed by the dividing of a sacrifice. The two parties to the covenant shared the flesh of the sacrifice, and that symbolized them becoming one flesh or of one accord or one mind. One flesh in a symbolic sense, in that they were of one mind in the thing that they had agreed to. Now, we're speaking of the Old and New Covenants, two covenants that are featured in the Bible, but there are more than just the, these two covenants. There are several covenants described in the Bible. And the covenants agreed to by God, if thoroughly analyzed, explicitly or implicitly involved two essential features, at least two essential features. And those features are, first of all, mercy or grace or unmerited pardon and favor before God. 
And the second feature of these covenants agreed to by God in Scripture is obedience to the eternal law of God. Mercy and obedience to the law of God. Using the covenant of God with Abraham as an example, we find that first God required Abraham to depart from the land of the Chaldeans whose chief city was Babylon. And Abraham obeyed God's command. This was a type of repentance, a type of coming out of sin as, as Babylon is used in the Bible as a symbol of sin. In Acts 7 and verse 2 it says, Acts 7 and verse 2 it says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran and from there when his father was dead he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. This was Stephen, I believe, speaking in, in Jerusalem. And in Revelation 18, we find that Babylon is used as a very symbol of sin and rebellion against God. In Revelation 18 and verse 2, it says, He cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Just as God told Abraham to come out of Babylon or Chaldea lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues and so God told Abraham to leave the land of the Chaldeans the Babylonian empire and he did he obeyed in faith and that's pointed out in Galatians chapter 3 beginning with verse 5 where it says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? That is, the Old Covenant. The works of the Old Covenant as the Jews understood the Old Covenant. Or by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Abraham was acting in faith when he left Chaldea. He believed God and he was prepared to do what God told him to do as a consequence. In Hebrews 11 and verse 8, Hebrews 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now God had promised Abraham his blessings if he would leave Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, which was part of the old Babylonian empire. And he told him in Genesis 12, verse 3, that in him all families of the earth would be blessed. And each step of the way, as Abraham demonstrated his faith through obedience, God confirmed the covenant and revealed to Abraham further details concerning the covenant that he was made, making with Abraham. In James 2, verse 18, it says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he uses Abraham as an example of how Abraham showed his faith through the things that he did in obedience to God. 
In verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. In other words, what if Abraham had said, well, I believe you, God, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. You said, leave the Chaldean Empire, and I believe you, I believe in you, I believe you're God, but I'm not, going, I'm not prepared to leave. I'm not prepared to do what you told me to do. What kind of faith is that? It's not the kind of faith that's pleasing to God. It is hypocrisy. Faith, to have any meaning, has to be, as it says, made perfect through action. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham, who was childless at the time, that his seed would be multiplied as the stars of heaven. And it says, he believed in the eternal and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now Paul explains what it meant for Abraham to believe in the eternal in Romans 4 beginning with verse 20. It says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Thus, because Abraham believed with all his heart and with all of his soul that God would keep his word, and because he acted on that faith in the righteous fear of God, he became the recipient of grace, that is, unmerited pardon and favor. Now, notice that Abraham did not earn grace by his works. Abraham had works, but he did not earn anything by it that, because no one can earn God's unmerited pardon by works, because they're not something that can be earned. Abraham received grace through his faith, just as he obeyed through faith, but that was not counted as a debt because he obeyed God. It was, that is, it was not counted as a debt as far as God was concerned to pay Abraham something because it was something that was his duty, his obligation. Paul explains in Romans 4 and verse 4, if a man earns his pay by his work, it is not reckoned to him as a favor, but is paid him as a debt. But if he earns nothing by his work, but puts faith in him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is reckoned to him for righteousness. And this is from the translation in the Life and Epistles of Paul by Coney Baron Housen. If, not, if he earns nothing by his work, but puts faith in him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is counted to him for righteousness. Notice it doesn't say that he doesn't have any works it says he earns nothing by his work. So, through faith, Abraham received grace. And so we see the essential feature of all of God's covenant. The covenant with Abraham was an archetypical covenant. It was both typical of the old covenant as well as the new, and especially the new covenant. But we see this first feature of all of the covenants agreed to by God with humans typified in this covenant with Abraham, that of the giving of grace or unmerited pardon and favor. Now, many theologians explicitly or implicitly contend that grace and works or grace and law are mutually exclusive and that they do not coexist. It's either one or the other. But as I said, all of God's covenants contain the element of both grace and works or law. 
And surprising as it may seem to some indoctrinated in the false Christianity of the world, that includes the Old Covenant made with Israel in the wilderness as well as the New Covenant. Some claim that the Old Covenant was a covenant of works or law and the New Covenant a covenant of grace. That's not really true. That's misleading. The Old Covenant was a covenant of law, but it was also a covenant of grace. As we read in Jeremiah 31 and verse 2, the people found grace in the wilderness, even Israel. And you go through what happened with the Israelites and there's all kinds of evidence of God's grace being poured out on the nation of Israel. It was not just a covenant of law or works, it was a covenant of grace. The second feature of all of God's covenants that we've been discussing is the requirement of obedience, though, to His eternal law. And we find this feature also revealed in God's covenant with Abraham. And we should understand that faith, grace, and obedience to the law are not mutually exclusive, but necessarily complement one another. As we read earlier, faith is made perfect by the work of obedience and the purpose of extending grace or pardon is fulfilled. As we read in James chapter 4, faith served with his works and by works was faith made perfect. So let's notice how the covenant with Abraham demanded obedience to God's law. First of all, as I mentioned, God had required him to leave the area ruled by Babylon and Abraham obeyed in faith. And as Abraham continued to sojourn in faith, God revealed further details concerning the promise of the covenant. And in Genesis 12, verse 6, it says, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now, at first, when Abraham left Chaldea, he didn't know where he was going. He, wouldn't, he didn't know where God was leading him. Finally, God led him to Canaan. And then God told him after he arrived in Canaan, he said, this will be the inheritance. This land I'm giving you will belong to your descendants. In Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk through the land through its length and width, for I give it to you. So here's another element in the promise that God gave to Abraham that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth, an innumerable multitude. In Genesis 15 verse 7 is recorded one instance of God revealing further details concerning the covenant. God said to Abraham, I am the Eternal who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now, Notice what he said. He said, I'm the Eternal who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. He brought Abraham out of the area of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, with the aim of giving him an inheritance. Now, it's significant that the first of the Ten Commandments. Part of the law of the covenant with Israel made at Mount Sinai begins with the statement, I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now notice he told Abraham, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you an inheritance. He told Israel the same thing. Only he had brought them out of Egypt when he established his covenant with them. He said, I'm the eternal your God who brought you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. And so just as Abraham began his covenant relationship with God by being brought out of Babylon, 
and Israel began hers by being brought out of Egypt. Christians under the new covenant begin their relationship with the true God when they are brought out of spiritual Babylon and Egypt. When they are brought out of enslavement to Satan and this world through sin, which is represented typically by Babylon and Egypt. In other words, the same pattern we find in these covenants. We find the same pattern in the covenant with Abraham being brought out of Chaldea or Babylon to be given an inheritance. The Israelites being brought out of Egypt to be given an inheritance. And we, under the new covenant, being brought out of spiritual Babylon and Egypt to receive our inheritance. In Luke 4 and verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus Christ speaking, quoting Scripture actually, but He's speaking of Himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now what did He do with the Israelites? He liberated them. He proclaimed liberty to them. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what He did with Israel. And that's what He intends to do with all of mankind who will accept His terms to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then in verse 21, Jesus said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ, that's what His mission was and is. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, Jesus Christ had selected Paul for a special mission. And notice what Paul's mission was as Jesus gave it to him in Acts 26 and verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God was choosing Paul to take the gospel to both Israel and the Gentiles, primarily in his case to the Gentiles, but also he preached to Jews and Israelites. And the purpose of the preaching of the gospel was to open their eyes, to give them a chance to understand, to have the scales removed from their eyes so they could see and they could be turned from the power of Satan to worship God and thus receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those sanctified by faith in God. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. He said, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. So we see in every case here, the case of the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, our covenant, the new covenant, which is pointed to by both the covenant of Abraham with Abraham and the old covenant with Israel, we see that God delivers us and brings us into a proper relationship with Him so that we can receive His inheritance, so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Now in Genesis 15 and verse 16, God told Abraham that the iniquity 
by the sinfulness, the lawlessness of the Amorites, the people who were dwelling in the land of Canaan at that time, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, he said. Now, for this to have any meaning for Abraham, Abraham would have needed to understand what God was talking about when he said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And what that tells us is that Abraham knew the difference between iniquity and righteousness. Abraham was familiar with the standards of God's law which define what is good and evil. Now later God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 beginning with verse 1, Walk before me and be perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and you. So he was telling Abraham to strive for perfection. And again, when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their unlawful deeds, as they are described in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, he said to Abraham, Abraham shall surely, and this is Genesis 18, and beginning with verse 18, he said, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the eternal to do justice and judgment, that the eternal may bring upon Abraham, that which he has spoken of him. So, notice he said, I know that he will command his children in his household to keep the way of the eternal and do justice and judgment so that God would bring upon him those things promised. Now, God said he knew Abraham well enough to know that Abraham would do that. And how did he come to know Abraham would do that? Well, apparently because he had observed Abraham's obedience. He knew Abraham. He knew his character. He knew his record and his history of obedience. And later when God confirmed the covenant with Abraham's son Isaac, he did so because he said, as it says in Genesis 26 and verse 5, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. See, God's laws did not come into existence at Mount Sinai. They were simply a given to Israel in a codified form at Mount Sinai, but that's not when they began their existence. Those are eternal principles that were behind those laws. And they were enforced at the time of the Garden of Eden. They were enforced at the time of Noah, and they were in force at the time of Abraham. And Abraham had been instructed in God's laws, and he had obeyed them. Probably not perfectly, but, well, we know not perfectly because there were times when he made mistakes, but overall he was faithful to God, and he was obedient and faithful to God's commandments, as God himself said. God had given Abraham the supreme test, requiring of him his son, his only heir. And when Abraham passed the test, God said in Genesis 22 and verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he confirmed the covenant once again, swearing by himself, saying to Abraham, I will bless you because you have obeyed my voice. You have obeyed my voice. So we see that grace was a key element in the covenant with Abraham as was obedience to God's laws, to God's requirements, to his voice. These were essential elements in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, by understanding that these elements form the very essence of two cardinal points of the new covenant as well, then we are prepared to answer the question, why have a covenant at all? The second of these two features is mentioned first in 
Hebrews 10, where we are told what the new covenant is in specific terms. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. This is speaking of the new covenant as it's referred to. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Law is every bit as much a part of the new covenant as it was of the old covenant or of the covenant with Abraham. Writing the laws of God in our hearts and minds implies that we are driven, that we are motivated by a desire, a willingness to obey from the heart those laws. And that obedience is the product of a converted mind willingly led by God's Spirit. It requires God's Spirit to have that capability of faithfully following God's laws, but that's part of the new covenant. The second feature, the feature of grace, appears in verse 17 of Hebrews 10. It goes on to say, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In other words, I will forgive their sins. I will grant them grace, forgiveness, unmerited pardon and favor. Now, implicit in these statements... Planting the law in their hearts and minds, forgiving their sins. Implicit in these statements are responsibilities to each party of the covenant. Implied is a Christian's responsibility to yield to God, to submit to God's law and to the Holy Spirit as it leads him in obedience to God's law, him or her in obedience to God's law. Implied also is God's responsibility to forgive us and make His Spirit available to us. And these responsibilities, along with others that accompany them, are drawn out in much greater detail in the Book of the Covenant, which is the Holy Bible. The Bible was given to us as a covenant book to help us understand and succeed in obeying the terms of the covenant or living up to our, not only understanding the covenant, but living up to our responsibilities concerning the covenant, the agreement that we have submitted to in entering into this covenant. Now, the covenant, the old covenant, was a national covenant, a national covenant with physical Israel. The new covenant is also a national covenant with spiritual Israel. Now notice what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 to writing to the church. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The church in a sense from God's standpoint is a nation just as Israel was a nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. The church is made up of people of all sorts of diverse backgrounds and physical descent who were not all of one tribe or nation, but once they have entered into that covenant with God, they become a people, the people of God a people who had not obtained mercy, but now, as Peter wrote, have obtained mercy. Notice what God said to Israel when He established the covenant at Mount Sinai. He said in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be a special treasure to Me above all people. Virtually the same thing that Peter said to the church. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So yes, the covenant was to be obeyed individually by each person, but it was also collective in the sense that it was not just a covenant with one or two individuals, but it was a covenant with a group of individuals 
a nation, a people. And in Galatians 6, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. He refers to the church in a spiritual sense as the Israel of God. The covenant, the covenant that is entered into by we as individuals and we as a group collectively with God, you could view as the constitution of God's government. Because when we enter into that covenant, we are entering into a contract with God where we accept Him as our ruler, our high priest, our king, our savior, where we enter into a promise that we will obey God's word. We will accept His government over us. And so the covenant forms the constitution of that system of government. And it is a perfect and complete constitution when understood in its entirety. It includes the laws which govern God's people and the means of their administration. It provides penalties for the violation of those laws and a means of forgiveness and reconciliation. The covenant also includes the promises of benefits and blessings guaranteed by the government to those who for their part prove faithful to the covenant. So it is a constitution of law and of the protection of law, the guarantees of the law. It's a covenant which includes a means of forgiveness and reconciliation when laws are inadvertently broken or broken even on purpose when one actually repents of that. But it is also a covenant which includes benefits and blessings. Now, God's government is a monarchy in the sense that it is ruled from the top down and at its head is a king, a monarch. It's what a monarch means one ruler, one person at the top. And God's government is a monarchy. God is the king of the universe. God is the king of creation. Jesus Christ under God the Father is King of kings and Lord of lords. But it is not a lawless monarchy. It is a constitutional monarchy because it is established on the ground of a covenant, a constitution. And by means of that covenant, God gives His potential subjects certain guarantees. And he also lets them know their exact responsibilities. And God allows individuals to choose whether they wish to be a part of his kingdom or not. Whether they want to come under his rule or not. That's the reason for a covenant. Remember, a covenant is an agreement. But it is an agreement voluntarily entered into by each person who enters into that covenant with God. No one has to enter into that covenant. People have the right to refuse and to reject it. And God will have no one, however, in his kingdom who does not want to be there under his rule. And so he gives everyone a chance to decide if they want to be a part of that kingdom and he gives everyone a period of trial and testing to prove by their actions that they indeed really want to be in God's kingdom and that they will abide by the terms of the covenant. And that's why we're living these lives after conversion because through our actions then we are tested and tried. God proves this just as he proved Abraham over and over again. And so we are being tested as to whether we are actually willing to live up to the bargain or the agreement that we've made with God. Not that we've bargained with Him, but we've, we've entered into the bargain that He offers, so to speak. Now, by that means, God is assuring an everlasting kingdom of peace. Because the only people that will be in that kingdom are people who want to be there. People who understood the terms of the agreement, who entered into it voluntarily, and who 
have proven by their actions that they are willing to live up to the terms of the agreement. And so there won't be, once that kingdom is fully realized, once all of that is fulfilled, all the people who are going to be in God's kingdom have been resurrected and given eternal life, there won't be any rebellions, there won't be any schisms, no dissension, nobody trying to take over God's throne like Satan did because all the subjects will have godly character having been granted to them through the Holy Spirit and will be of one mind with their creator and life giver and subject, willingly subject to his authority. That's why God is establishing a covenant with us. So we see the brilliance of God's plan as it unfolds. God has in mind a life of abundance, of joy, and of peace for everyone in His kingdom, forever. He is a creator and a savior most worthy of our worship and exaltation. In the next sermon in this series, we will continue our discussion of the new covenant.